Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 9. This morning we come to one of the most beautiful and compelling pictures of our Savior that you'll find anywhere in the Gospels. It's a picture of His mercy and of His power, a picture of His approachability, you might say, and His gentleness, a picture of the breadth of His salvific work. A salvation that reaches high and low at the same time. It reaches the rich and the poor, the strong and the weak. It's a salvation that undoes the deepest of wrongs and answers the deepest despair. It soothes the darkest of sorrows. Behind all of this is sort of the realities of life. The realities that strike us suddenly with sorrow and those which linger and are sustained. It is the fallenness and the wickedness and the foolishness, the error and all of the things that mark this world. All of it is sort of brought together into this one account, and it is laid side by side with the incredible compassion and power and breadth of what our Savior does and who He is. It's a story of restoration. It's a story of of love, as I said. It's a story about access. It's a story about the comprehensiveness of God's work. It's a story about how Christ offers this restoration to any and to all who approach Him, regardless of their station in life or their situation, when they approach Him by faith, He offers Himself to all those who approach. No matter their brokenness and their pain, He comes with healing and restoration. Now, Let me just read this uh, passage for us, beginning in verse 18, so that we can begin to understand how all of these things unfold in this one little story. Matthew 9, 18, while he was saying these things, behold, a ruler came to him and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl rose. And the report of this went through all that district. As I said, this is a poignant story that brings together uh, just an enormous number of strands of life. It really represents in one tiny capsule 
a picture of the kind of grief and pain and heartache that invades every part of our life all the time. It, in, it involves a sort of, sort of, sort of sudden, sudden grief that erupts out of nowhere like that of a father whose daughter suddenly dies. And it involves the kind of sustained grief that might be with you for a number of years, maybe decades, like a woman who has this constant issue of bleeding. And not only that, but it even brings in all of the social factors, all of the societal factors that impact these various people. It brings in the people who have been elevated to some high station, and it brings in the people who have been denigrated to some low station, and it sort of assumes and, and you might even say addresses all of the sinful characteristics and tendencies and and uh, byproducts in society that would produce all of that as well. And so what we see here is not only a restoration physically, but, 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 but we would even say a restoration socially as well as spiritually. This is the, a picture of the full-orbed work of our Savior on display as I said, encapsulated in this very, very short passage. It's a passage of grief, but also a passage of grace. So much sorrow, so many tears, so much of our heart that breaks because of circumstances that come into our life, because of the way people respond to those circumstances, because of what it means in our standing with one another, because of how it affects our life day in and day out. But it's a message of how far God's grace and how powerfully that grace reaches and works. How it eliminates all of the factors that contribute to those sorrows and reaches even beyond the boundaries, the obstacles that may convince us that our sorrows are beyond His concern. It's a grace on display that bridges all the barriers to extend His mercy to all. Now, I think you can look at this text and and just notate some of those barriers. We could speak about them just in relation to what we see right here And, and, and really addressing the fact that many might believe that, that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. That you are beyond the scope of His mercy. And yet Jesus shows us in very practical ways how really untrue that is. Now, to understand that, we can look, I think, at these 
barriers, three of them that I think are highlighted in this passage. The first one we might simply call desperate situations. Desperate situations. Situations where you feel like life is caving in around you. For some people, as I said, it comes suddenly. For others, it is sustained. For some people, it rushes in in a moment like the death of a child. For others, it's a congenital health issue. It could, be an, uh, it could be a financial issue, it could be a health issue, it could be a relational issue, it could be all number of things. But whatever it is, it comes with the compounding sense, not only of the external pain, but the compounding sense internally that the circumstances you're in must mean God has abandoned you. Some people see their circumstances as evidence that it's pointless to reach out to God. For others, it's actually their point of desperation that causes them to begin to seek God because they realize that there is no answer in anyone else. They might have tried all the solutions that are out there, They might have pursued all of those things, and they have realized that they are empty. Now, that's what you have here. You have two people who have both tried solutions, and in their point of grief and sorrow and sadness, they are suddenly forced to recognize or they are forced to recognize that the answers are not going to be found in this world. They're not going to be found in others. They're not going to be found in the philosophies or even the religion of this world outside of Christ. You have two people. One of them is this ruler in verse 18 who comes and bows at Jesus' feet. Now, Matthew doesn't give us a lot of detail about this man, You might conclude just by reading, if he was a ruler within Israel, he must have been at least a kind of uh, spiritually respectable man. But we know from other gospels that he is not just any ruler, he's the ruler of the local synagogue. In fact, Mark and Luke give us his name. His name is Jairus. And he was the one who was sort of at the top of, of society. He was the upper crust of everything. He was a guy who would have been uh, sort of uh, uh, well acquainted with all of Israel's laws and traditions and uh, practices and social expectations and all of those things. He was well connected to all the local religious leaders, all the scribes, all the Pharisees would have known this man. The very ones who had become the primary opponents of Christ, who had become the uh, critics of Christ, who had become the enemies even of Christ, the very ones who would eventually turn and crucify Christ or seek his crucifixion, Jairus was right in the thick of them. He was... I'm sure already a participant in a number of private conversations about Jesus 
criticizing and critiquing him along with everyone else. I'm sure there's a level of comfort that he had found in his own traditions, in his own standing, in his own affirmation from other people until, until a crisis came. And at that point, he realizes that all of this religious stuff that he's been engaging in It might gain the esteem of some people around him. It might even gain him a position in the synagogue. But when it came to the desperate situation of losing his daughter, it was empty. But he had heard of a man. A man who had already healed the son of a centurion. Back at the beginning of chapter 8, we read that a centurion came And his own son was sick and about to die, and he had healed him with just a word. He, in a small town, I'm sure, would have heard of something like that. And so he goes and he pursues Christ. His point of desperation causes him to drop all of the pretense, to drop all of the games, to drop all of the show, to drop all of the facade that he had been living under, and to go because he knew that whatever he had been following, no matter how devoted he might have seemed, and no matter how sort of uh, uh, pretentious he was in carrying himself in that environment, he knew that it was empty. We don't know how long he's been thinking about this. We don't know how open he was. He might have been one of those who had engaged in these conversations and had some sort of internal conflict, some kind of wrestling going on in his heart. I remember those days myself. I think I've mentioned when I was a 16-year-old boy going on the streets of Pensacola, Florida, partying with my friends and being approached by some people trying to share the gospel on the street. Me and my friends engaged in a loud Uh, sort of session ridiculing, mocking, screaming at these guys who were just trying to share the gospel with us. And we walked down the street kind of chuckling at ourselves and patting ourselves on the back. And I know at that moment, while on the outside, my, my face might have been laughing, on the inside, I was wrestling. I knew that what not only they were doing was righteous, but I knew that the way I was living was not. And there was a tremendous amount of conflict and massive upheaval going on in my heart even at that moment. I'd come to know the Lord a year later, but the conviction had already started. Well, maybe Jairus had been like that. Not sure, but no matter what his internal thoughts were, he certainly at this point had not identified with Jesus externally. Otherwise, they wouldn't have left him in his position. There's no way he could have survived. He knew the consequences. John 12, 42 tells us many of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. That was kind of the story of his whole ministry, Jesus' whole ministry. Jairus was one of these men. He wouldn't dare confess Christ because of the social consequences. 
So he kept up the game until a desperate situation came along. Now everything's changed. Now he's reached a point of sorrow and emptiness. And this is really where so many people have to come. They reach the point where they finally surrender to Christ. They're desperate enough to cast aside their whole life. They're so weary of the emptiness that they had been pursuing. A true point of desperation sweeps over them and they bust the doors down to know everything they can know about the answers that they can find in Christ. And everything that they have suddenly crumbles around them and it seems like it doesn't matter. This is what Jesus really meant when he said, he who's found his life will lose it and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. They find themselves at the end and so they don't care because everything else has already been proven worthless. And so he comes, and Matthew says he bows down. Proskuneo is the word. It's the word that we typically translate worship. The leader of the synagogue, bowing down in worship to a man. It would have been scandalous, but he was willing to risk it. He was willing to risk it. This is equally true of the woman in this passage. She was also desperate. Matthew tells us that she had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. Obviously, uh, not some sort of uh, open womb. Most people speculate that it's a reference to some sort of a uterine condition, maybe a tumor or some, something else, but it led to this constant sort of hemorrhaging. It wasn't the kind of internal hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging that would have led to a stroke, but there was this discharge Mark tells us with more detail that she had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all. But rather, it had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. So here's the woman at the end of her resources, literally. She had spent every penny she had seeking happiness and healing, and yet everything just got worse. Her heart had to be weighed down continually, I'm sure, uh, in a progressive kind of a way, getting more and more burdened with every passing month, every passing year, as the problems lingered on, as the resources dwindled, as she found herself with fewer and fewer options and less and less that seemingly she could do about it. And she had very much searched out the answers. If the synagogue leader searched the answers in his traditions and his laws, she searched the answers in her physicians and her bank account. And she herself found all of it empty. And so she comes in an act of desperation. She ventures into an unwelcoming crowd trying secretly to touch the coat of Christ. This again is a mark of those who come to Christ. They come 
and they have nothing, whether it's physically or spiritually, emotionally, all those things, they come no longer making any claim to the answers, no longer making any claim as an authority, no longer making any claim of the truth outside of themselves. They are broken. They're desperate. And they turn to Christ. As similar as the, excuse me, as different as the backgrounds of these two people are, though, there's one thing that unites them. Simple faith. That's the thing that makes them the same. One's at the top, one's at the bottom. One is penniless, one is probably still quite wealthy. One had his world invaded suddenly. One had lived in this kind of misery for a long time. They had a lot of things that separated them, but one thing united them. They were willing to approach Christ with faith. All this kind of highlights a second barrier that for some might convince them that they're beyond the reach of God's mercy. But this passage, I think, clarifies that they're not. And we could just call this diverse backgrounds, diverse backgrounds. As I said, Jairus would have been among the upper crust of society, a prominent religious leader, a synagogue leader. Uh, in Jewish life, this would have placed you at the heart of of your town or your city. It, the synagogue itself was the educational center. It's, it was sort of the school in the town where the kids would go for their education. It was the social center. It was where most of the Jewish festivals would have been celebrated out of. It was obviously the religious center. It was even the kind of legal center. It would have uh, served as uh, in an unwalled city, it would have served as the kind of local court. And so this guy, as the leader of the synagogue, would have had his hand and his say in all of these things. He was the leader. He was prominent. He was the creme de la creme of Jewish society. So few people would be surprised to see Jesus responding to a request from Jairus to follow him back to his home they might have been surprised to see Jairus coming, but they wouldn't have been surprised to see Jesus responding, this is what you do whenever one of the leaders of society um, sort of compels you or invites you to follow them. But at the same time, they would have been shocked at Jesus' response to this woman. I mean, that Jairus had come with a sense of urgency. His daughter had just died. And I'm sure in the hearts of everyone, if anything could be done, it was all sort of time dependent. You had to rush, you had to go, you had to get there right away. Maybe possibly if there was a chance of resuscitating her, it could be done in the first few minutes, but you couldn't wait forever. But here is this woman, this woman who's been suffering now for 12 years, 12 years when, by the way, she would have been considered unclean. That was the verdict that would be rendered on her by the law of God. Leviticus 15, if a woman has a discharge of blood many days, she's unclean. Any bed on which she lies all the days of her discharge shall be like her, the bed of her menstruation. And everything on which she sits will be unclean, 
like her uncleanness at that time. Likewise, whoever touches them shall be unclean and shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean till evening. But the passage goes on to say that in order for her to be clean, she must pass seven days without bleeding. Well, that obviously isn't happening in this woman's life. She was bleeding continually, which meant that she's perpetually unclean. She couldn't worship at the temple. She couldn't enter the synagogue. She couldn't offer the sacrifices that would cleanse her conscience. She couldn't do the things that God had given her to do through the sacrifices. She couldn't feel a sense of being close to God. If anybody in society felt far from God, it had to be someone like this lady. If anyone in society felt like they couldn't approach God, God didn't want them to approach Him, it had to be this lady. Not only did it have religious implications, it would have had social implications. There was a tremendous amount of humiliation and embarrassment, I'm sure. Rather than trying to penetrate society, she would have, I'm certain, withdrawn, tried to hide her condition. This had been going on, Matthew says, for 12 years. If it started uh, when she was 12 or 13 years old, she'd already be in her mid-30s, excuse me, her mid-20s. Her whole life was dominated by this. This is uh, mostly all she could remember for her adult life. Luke's already mentioned it had economic consequences. She spent all of her money. She was devastated. In her condition, she most likely would have never married. She certainly wouldn't have had children. So Jairus represents the upper tier. This woman is the bottom. He represents the successful, the well-connected. She represents the devastated and the isolated. Jairus represents the one who may have assumed his whole life that he was connected to God. She represents the one who assumed her whole life that God didn't want her. Jairus found himself at the center of religious life. This this lady found herself on the outside. She was a casualty in every way. Medically, physically a casualty. Economically, a casualty. Socially, a casualty. Religiously, a casualty. You talk about the impact of a fallen world that not only has someone dealing with physical ailments like this, but compounding them with the social, the mental, emotional anguish. And yet, as Jesus rushes off to Jairus' house, Verse 19, Matthew says he rose and followed him with his disciples. It's kind of short and curt and, and uh, almost with a sense of urgency. They just got up immediately and start going with this guy because his daughter had just died. In the middle of that, she says to herself, this woman, if only I could touch his garment, I'll be made well. It's actually an imperfect tense in the Greek, meaning that she's repeatedly saying this to herself. If only I could touch her, if only I could touch his garment, if only I could touch his garment. 
trying to muster the courage, I'm sure, to make her way into this crowd. She came up behind him because probably she feared that she'd be rejected like so often if she tried to speak to him face to face. She comes up behind him, hopefully not noticed. But instead, when she touches him, Jesus stops and turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. The other gospels give us, again, more details. Uh, Mark 5 says, Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out of him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? My tassels, literally, the Jews would wear four tassels uh, based on the commandment in the Old Testament. These, law, these commandments, uh, excuse me, these tassels were supposed to be reminders of their obligations to the law. Who touched my tassels? Remarkable, probably impossible that he would even notice someone touching a dangling tassel. And yet he stops. His disciples not surprisingly respond. You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched you? I mean, like, the answer is everybody touched you. And what are you talking about? Everyone is touching you right now. I, I, I know that experience. I remember the subway of Hong Kong, we always said it wasn't crowded unless at least seven people were touching you at the same time. I mean, I've been in those situations, but this was different. Everyone was touching him, but not everybody was touching him in faith. Everyone was touching him, but not everyone was approaching him the same way. Mark says he perceived in himself that power had gone out. Don't misunderstand that. I mean, he isn't some divine Duracell battery that discharges energy, you know, whenever you come in contact with it, Jesus was fully aware, not only that power had gone out of him, he was aware of who it went to. In fact, Mark says it in 521, he looked around to see the woman. He knew it wasn't a man, he knew it was a woman, and he knew that she had touched him. He recognized her, he recognized her faith, he recognized her belief, but at that moment, his intent was not just that she be healed, his intent was that her faith be highlighted. He wanted to demonstrate his compassion to her publicly and in that way provide a kind of public restoration. As he was showing his mercy to Jairus, he wanted to make sure he demonstrated publicly his mercy to her as well. And he didn't stop and say, look, lady, I'm trying to uh, get over to the house of this important guy. Would you keep your hands off of me? Would you recognize that, look, if this guy gets converted, I mean, he's important, he's prestigious. I mean, if we could get him in the door of the disciples, then think about how he could be used for the gospel in greater ways. That wasn't his mentality. He wasn't playing favorites. God's not a celebrity seeker. He doesn't show partiality. That's why Jesus turns and he addresses her. Back to how he calls her daughter. It's the only time in Scripture that he ever uses that tender word to speak to any lady. Probably meant to highlight the same kind of love and compassion for this forgotten woman 
that Jairus, at that very moment, was feeling for his girl. But he calls her out because he wanted to not only restore her, but he also wanted to affirm her and teach her. Which kind of brings up a third barrier that sometimes might prevent people from coming to Christ. We might just call it deficient faith. Deficient faith. Jesus tells this woman, your faith has made you well. It's not my clothing in some magical way. It is your faith. She clearly had approached him in some sort of mysticism, thinking that a touch of his garment, maybe without even him being aware of it, imagining that she could approach him from behind and he wouldn't even notice, somehow magically, superstitiously, she would be healed. There was this kind of superstition mixed in with her thinking. She came in desperation. She certainly felt the solution to her problems weren't found anywhere else, and she certainly associated uh, the solution with Christ, but exactly how that solution would come about probably was a little confusing. She was confused about that. She didn't fully understand how it all worked. She had what we might call a deficient faith, but she knew that the answer had to be somewhere with Jesus. But even that doesn't hinder God's work in her life. He heals her anyway. She didn't have to know all the answers. She didn't have to have all the right theology. He doesn't reject her because of her ignorance and darkness. But at the same time, he doesn't want to leave her that way. He wants her to understand that not only is she a recipient of his healing, she's a recipient of his love and his acceptance. So he calls her out. He identifies her in front of the crowd. And he clarifies that God didn't mediate this healing through her, uh, excuse me, through his clothing. That wasn't the conduit. The conduit was her faith. Her faith is the conduit that connected her to Christ, that allowed his power to flow. I love what John Calvin says here. He said, God deals kindly and gently with his people accepts their faith through though imperfect and weak and does not lay to their charge the faults and imperfections with which it is connected. You know, that's true. You can come to Christ even if you don't have all the answers. You can come to Christ even if you, uh, ha- uh, you know, have those sort of lingering questions. You can come to Christ. Even if you're not the synagogue ruler, the one who sort of parades about and strides about in all the confidence of religiosity, you can come to Christ with all of the deficiencies that you have. But if you come knowing that he is the only one who has the answers, he receives you. He doesn't demand your perfection. He doesn't require you to know everything. He just needs you to see your need and to know that the answer will not come from anywhere else or anyone else but him. That's all. That's what she brought. 
So he welcomed the most deficient faith and he answered it with his grace. Now, Matthew rounds out the story by telling us that Jesus goes on to Jairus' house. Jairus is trailing along, fearful and quiet. Over in Matthew chapter 5, uh, that we read that he gets there and, and uh, the synagogue leader there is along with him and the people are weeping and wailing loudly. They were weeping and wailing loudly. Over in Luke chapter 8, we uh, find the same story. They arrive at the house. While they're coming, someone comes out of the house and says, Your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. Jesus, hearing this, answered him and said, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. Here's Jairus, and no matter what he thought about this interruption that happened on the way to his house, with every step of the way, he's growing more fearful. He's growing more anxious. He came, he wanted the help of Christ, but he walks step by step with doubts and with fears. He gets there and all this commotion is going on, all this wailing is going on. This would have been part of the tradition of Israel. They hired wailing women. The the Mishnah, excuse me, says even the poorest of families in Israel must hire no less than three. They hire these wailing women. You might have heard me say this. I was teaching this time, this uh, one time in Kenya and going into all this elaborate detail about how they used to hire wailing women. And they would have them sit outside the house and wail and wail in order to kind of stir the emotions because when someone dies, we have a tendency to kind of suppress all that. So they want to kind of get it to the surface and help you kind of process all that. And I was going into all this elaborate detail and they're just uh, nodding their heads. They're like, yeah, we do that. They hire wailing women in Africa. They stand outside the, the home and they make as, many, as much commotion and loud wailing as they can. If a poor person hired at minimum three, some wealthy, well-connected man like Jairus would have probably had dozens. And so as he approaches the home, all of this commotion and loud wailing and his flute players all sort of making this chaos. And Jesus enters in and he says, stop it. Jairus is probably overcome as he re-enters the scene. Jews normally buried their, their dead in 24 hours, so he was still very fresh in trying to process all this. And his emotions, I'm sure, were overcoming him. And Jesus has to look at him and say, don't be afraid. Even his faith wasn't where it needed to be. Even his faith was deficient in its own ways. Don't be afraid, he says, just believe. He dismisses these professional 
whalers who begin to laugh at him. That's how you know they're professionals. They're not emotionally invested in this. They're just kind of, they got a gig. But when the Jesus comes in and says, she's not dead, she's just sleeping, kind of speaking uh, sort of uh, uh, spiritually, you know, uh, this is just a temporal thing. They begin to laugh at him, think it's a big joke. He puts them outside the house. He enters in. Matthew says she takes, he takes the girl by the hand and she rises up. Don't be fooled and don't misunderstand that. It's not as if somehow he was mistaken. She was really dead. This wasn't just some sort of awakening from uh, some stupor of some sort. The funeral had already started. The professional mourners had already been hired. They had already confirmed that she was indeed dead. And by the way, these professionals, they've been to many funerals. They would have known a dead girl from a live girl. Everyone knew she was dead. But he takes her by the hand and raises her up. Very simple, but incredibly powerful restoration. And you see here not only the depth of his compassion, but the strength of his power. What are we to make of all that? Well, obviously, Jesus can restore. He has the power to do it. But just as importantly, he has the willingness. He's going to restore all that was broken. The curse that came on this world from the fall of humanity, where God cursed the earth, just as he cursed mankind. The curse that Romans 8 says we now join in, we groan inwardly in ourselves and creation itself groans, longing for the restoration of the sons of God. All that groaning that takes place, all this heartache and pain that comes from both rebellion and sin and foolishness and error and sickness and disease and all that stuff. What we have here is a microcosm of the coming restoration that will sweep the entire creation. The dead will be raised to life. The outcast will be brought in. The proud will be brought low. The blind will be made to see. These healings that Jesus did, they themselves were somewhat temporary. The daughter of Jairus would eventually die again. This lady herself would die one day. But the point of the story isn't to bring about permanent restoration at this moment. The point of the story is to show that Jesus was the one and is the one who has the power that upon his return can make permanent permanent restoration. And it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where society has placed you. It doesn't matter how dire, desperate your situation seems. It doesn't matter. You may conclude, based on your circumstances, that God would have nothing to do with you. You may have 
foolishly assumed that God uh, is mighty pleased with you. But one day you'll find yourself in a desperate situation reaching out to him. And what his life and his ministry and his miracles communicate to us is that he receives every one who comes to him by faith. Everyone. He receives you. He heals your broken spirit, heart, relationship with God. And he begins the process of restoration. Restoring you in your inner man now and restoring you in your outer man at the resurrection when he returns. Father, we're grateful for this. I'm thankful for your word that ministers to us the truth and cleanses our heart and mind that's burdened, that's darkened, that is despairing. You cleanse us, Lord. You fill us with hope. You fill us with joy and with peace. You fill us with yourself such that we find everything we need. You are the answer to our desperation, Lord. We're grateful to know that. We affirm it today by faith. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.